In today's message on Living in the Light, Bible teacher Anne Graham Lotz says to each of us, repent of your sin. The world is just sinful. They're doing what comes naturally. The thing that concerns me is when the people within the church are living like the world. Welcome to this edition of Living in the Light. Anne Graham Lotz gives us God's standard for perfection, a standard that never changes. Here's Anne. We've gotten so good at comparing ourselves with each other, haven't we? And then we compare ourselves with the world around us, and the world around us has so lowered their standards, there are no standards anymore. And we compare ourselves with each other, and we think, well, I'm a little bit better than he is, and not as bad as that person is, so I guess I'm okay, and God's standards haven't changed. And he is still holy, 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 and he doesn't measure us against another person. He measures us against the perfection of the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah's eyes were opened in a fresh way to the holiness of who Jesus is. The standards that haven't changed, standards of perfection, he is high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. The seraphs were calling to each other, praising him until the doorposts of the temple shook. Holy, holy, holy. And in the year that his life was shaken, when the ugly brown package showed up on his doorstep, God opened Isaiah's eyes in a fresh way to who Jesus is. And in light of who Jesus is, God opened Isaiah's eyes in a fresh way to who he was. And to show you this contrast, turn back with me to chapter 5. And this was before Isaiah had his wake-up call. He was involved in ministry, like many of you, active in his church, sharing God's word with the people around him. He knew what was wrong in his world. He knew what needed to be done to make it right. And he's a really good preacher. So in chapter 5 of Isaiah, he's preaching a sermon. He has six points. They all begin with woe. And I'm going to give you the points and then paraphrase them to make them more relevant for us. But in chapter 5, verse 8, He says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Woe to you who build up your business at somebody else's expense. Woe to you who take somebody else's pension to pad yours. Woe to you who to steal the taxpayer's money to just feed your own pockets. Verse 11. He says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. Woe to those who just live for pleasure. Verse 18, woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, wickedness is with cart ropes, woe to the religious hypocrite, woe to the one who's pretending to be more spiritual than they are, living their lives to impress the next person. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Now, stay with me for a moment because I'm going to make a very important point. But woe to those who take the truth of God and exchange it for a lie. And we take the labels that we give sin, switch them around so they don't seem so bad. So we call lying exaggeration. It doesn't seem so bad. And we call stealing gossip when we steal somebody else's reputation. It's just gossip doesn't seem as bad as stealing. And we call murder a right to choose. And we call an abomination a gay lifestyle, and we call fornication safe sex, and we're changing the labels to make it seem less like sin. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight, woe to the proud. 
Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, champions at mixing drinks, woe to the alcoholic, the drug dependent, the chemically dependent, and Isaiah's just preaching up a storm. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. That's exactly the way I want to respond when I watch the evening news. And I just want to say, God, woe to them, woe to them, woe to them. And we're pointing our finger at everybody else. In fact, there are times when I can point my finger at my neighbor and I say, woe to you, it's your fault. And if I could just have a new neighbor, if I could just have a new employer, you know, things would be okay. Woe to them. And chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the glory of Jesus in the light of the holiness of Christ, what does he say in verse 5? Woe to me. And in the light of who Jesus is, Isaiah saw himself as God saw him. And he said, woe to me, because Isaiah recognized he was responsible for the sin in his own life. He could no longer blame his parents. He couldn't blame his education or lack of it. He couldn't blame the government. He couldn't blame the church. He wasn't a victim. He was a sinner. Now, when was the last time you acknowledged responsibility for your own sin? And I can tell you, other people can tempt us and lead us into it and sort of encourage us in it, but the choice is ours, isn't it? Bottom line, it was my choice to do that thing or say that thing or not do that thing. It's The sin is mine. And so Isaiah had to own up to the responsibility for sin in his life. And he said, woe to me, I'm responsible for it. And then he said, I'm ruined by it. And I believe right there in the light of the holiness of Christ, Isaiah lost all of his self-esteem. And you know that feeling you've got it all together and you think you can do this and you know you're pretty good and now you're on a roll and, and he just lost it. And in our culture, we work so hard to build it up, don't we? Everywhere we go, we're trying to build up our self-esteem and assert ourselves and don't let anybody walk over us. You know, we're not going to be a doormat and we're just building ourselves up. That's not biblical. The Bible says we're to die to ourselves. We're to crucify ourselves. And we're trying to build ourselves up. And Isaiah, in the light of who Jesus is, lost all of his self-esteem. Now listen to me. There's a difference between self-esteem and self-worth that you find at the cross, okay? And I'm a person who struggles with low self-esteem, so it was easy for me to lose mine. (laughs) I was raised in a family of high achievers, and that made me feel very small, and finally I just acknowledged that, you know, Jesus, I'm just inadequate, and I, not much, and then I just had to even die to the little bit I was, but you know something? I came to the foot of the cross, and I saw who Jesus is, the most glorious person seated on the throne at the center of the universe, the one who came down, and gave his own blood to take away my sin because he thought I was so special. And so I found my self-worth at the cross. So don't misunderstand me, okay? But Isaiah, I believe, lost his self-esteem and his confidence in himself and all that macho feeling, and it just crumbled in the light of who Jesus is. And he was ruined. And not only ruined himself, but ruined in his service. He said the most incredible thing. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now listen, he was a prophet. So he served the Lord with his lips. And he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. In other words, Isaiah had to acknowledge he was no better than the people to whom he'd been pointing his finger. They were sinners, and he was a sinner. And they were under God's condemnation, and he was under God's condemnation. And we're all sinners. And he was ruined by the sin in his life. 
How could he be in ministry? How could he ever give out God's word? How could he ever witness? How could he ever share the gospel if he was no better than the people to whom he was preaching? And somehow in his mind, he thought he would have to be better than them in order to tell them about Christ, in order to tell them the truth. And here he was just like they were. Now, when was the last time you acknowledged that the people inside the church are no better than the people outside the church? With one big difference, a people inside the church is supposed to have been forgiven. <laughs> We've been to the cross, but we're still sinners, aren't we? What gives us the right to point our finger at anybody, especially the world? You know something? The world is just sinful. They're doing what comes naturally when they sin and they do wicked things. The thing that concerns me is when the people within the church are living like the world. That shouldn't be. So when was the last time you acknowledged and confessed your sin, that you're responsible for it, and you're ruined by it? James tells us if we've ever committed one sin in all of our lives, we're guilty of every sin in the book because it reveals that we have the disease of sin. And when my youngest daughter was little, she came running up to me and she said, Mommy, something's bitten me. I pulled up her shirt. There was a little red bite. I looked around. There was no spiders or anything. And I said, well, it's okay. He's gone. And a few minutes later, she came and she said, Mommy, he's bitten me again. And I pulled up her shirt and there were two little red bites. And so this time I took her shirt off. I looked. I didn't see anything, but I put a clean shirt on her. And I said, well, now you're okay. And she came back a few minutes later and she said, Mommy, he's bitten me all over. And I pulled up her shirt and she was covered in red spots. She had the chicken pox. Now, the first spot showed that her whole body was riddled with a disease. And you may just have one spot of sin, but it shows that your whole body has the disease of sin. You're a sinner, and so am I. So I don't know what the sin is in your life, but I'll tell you something. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I wonder if the greatest sin in all the world is not rape, or adultery, or stealing, or murder is the greatest sin in all the world. Not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And your neighbor is yourself. That's a lot of sin in just that one area, isn't it? That's not counting all the times I lie and gossip and lose my temper, and you know. And so I confess that I'm a sinner. And James actually makes it a little worse than that. He said, if you've ever known to do the right thing and you didn't do it, that's sin. Did you know to get up in the morning and have a word of prayer, read your Bible, and you just rolled over and slept for 15 more minutes? That's sin. That's a lot of sin in my life. <laughs> when I sit down on an airplane and I know to share a word with the person next to me and I'm just so tired, I put a book in front of my face, and that's sin for me. Do you see? So not just doing the wrong thing, but knowing to do the right thing and not doing it. That's sin. So is there some sin in your life? You know, this past year, I, God was convicting me of sin, and I was so superficial I didn't recognize it in my life. And I came across a list of sin written by an old-timey revivalist, and I went through it the first time, and I thought, well, thank goodness none of that sin's in my life, and went through it the second time, and I thought, well, maybe one or two. Went through it the third time, and I saw every single sin in this list in my life. So I published it. <laughs> And I'm just going to read some of them to you, okay? Ingratitude for what blessing or answered prayer have you neglected to thank God? Neglect of Bible reading? How many days have you gone without opening your Bible? 
How many days have you read it but you can't remember what you read? Unbelief. What promise has God given that you doubt will be fulfilled? Prayerlessness. How often are your prayers just spiritual chatter offered without fervent or focused faith? And remember, daydreaming is not prayer. Unconcerned for the lost. Who do you know who has never received Christ as Savior? When have you shared the gospel with that person? Never? Hypocrisy. Are you pretending to be more spiritual than you are? Are you pretending to be anything that you're not? Pride. Are you impressed with your own reputation and accomplishments? Are you offended and resentful when someone else receives attention? When sitting in church, instead of preparing your heart for worship, are you wondering if people have noticed your appearance? <laughs> Neglect of family. What have you truly sacrificed for their spiritual, physical, and emotional well-being? I mean, really, nothing? Very little? Neglect of God's family? Who has fallen into sin or disgrace within your church? What have you done to reach out to that person in love? Or is there someone within your church family who has lost a job or is in some physical or practical need and you've said glibly, I'm praying for you, yet you've done nothing to help? And then did you quickly forget and you didn't even pray? Envy? Who seems more gifted, fruitful, recognizable than you? Have you felt jealous? Critical spirits? When have you found fault with someone because he or she just doesn't measure up to your standards? Slander. When have you told the truth about someone with the intention of causing others to think less of him or her? Lying. When have you either made a statement or tried to make an inference that was contrary to the unvarnished truth? And the list goes on, doesn't it? Anger, jealousy, gossip, self-indulgence, bitterness, unforgiving spirits, long list of sin in my life. And I'm not going to ask you to tell me what the sin is in your life. But even as I'm speaking, is God telling you? Is he convicting you of something in particular? And Isaiah was... I think on his face before God, in the light of the holiness of Jesus. And he was not comparing himself with anybody else. He was just seeing himself measured against the holiness of Christ. And he cries out, I'm responsible for my sin and I'm ruined by it. Woe to me. And you know, it's just so sweet at that moment because his eyes were not only open to the holiness of Christ and the helplessness of his own condition, but to the hope of the cross. And God came to him. God initiated contact. God sent one of his angels. In verse 6, one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, the only place I know your guilt can be taken away and your sin atoned for is at the cross. This is an Old Testament picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the coal represents the blood of Jesus. And that angel took the blood of Jesus and pressed it on Isaiah's lips. But it was like a hot coal. And if you press a hot coal on somebody's lips, those lips would blister, wouldn't they? I mean, searing, scorching pain. And it may be as I've just read that list. And as the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and life and convicts you of sin, that's painful, isn't it? It hurts. 
And I can tell you, after God began revealing the sin in my life, it took 10 days of crying out to him and repenting of my sin, and I felt shame and guilt, and I was in ministry. Listen, God is saying, and in the light of who I am, you just don't measure up. And he began pointing that sin out in my life, and I was so filled with shame and pain. It couldn't have hurt worse if it had been a hot coal pressed to my lips. So it hurts, the conviction. But listen to me, after Isaiah's lips were burned with that hot coal, I guarantee you he did not preach the same way. (laughs) He didn't talk the same way. He was a different person. And after the Lord finished dealing with me, I pray that I'm a different person and that God would take me into a fresh experience of his grace and his forgiveness because the cross is not just for them. The cross is not just for you. The cross is for me. And it's at the cross that I'm cleansed of my sin. And I came as a little girl when I was about eight years old, and I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin, to cleanse me, to come into my heart, to be my Savior, and I believe he did. I believe I was born again into God's family as a little girl. But you know something? I still sin, and I need to come back to the cross and confess my sin by the name God calls it. Stop switching the labels and just say, God, it's jealousy, it's anger, it's unforgiveness, it's bitterness, whatever it is, and just confess it before him that I might be cleansed. And I wondered, is there someone here, you have some sin in your life, and God has convicted you, and he wants to cleanse you. He wants to set you free. Do you know something? On the other side of that repentance that took me 10 days, on this side of that, (laughs) there is a freedom and a joy and a release and a sweet sense of God's presence in my life and I'm surrounded by his love and I have a renewed focus on his purpose for my life and I pray there is a greater blessing that not only flows into me but flows through me into the lives of others and it's like I've come into something fresh and on a higher level and I believe that's what God wants to do in your life and I'm not talking about just salvation because I know most of you here, you've been saved. You're like I was when I was a little girl. You know you're forgiven and you're going to heaven when you die. But in between your salvation and heaven, there's a lot God wants to give you. And listen, the doorway, the pathway, the key that unlocks the door to the fullness of God's blessing, the key that unlocks the doorway to personal revival is repentance of sin. In the Old Testament, there's a story of Joshua who took the children of Israel out of the wilderness, do you remember? And they went into the promised land, and the first thing they had to face was the enemy fortress of Jericho, and they overcame Jericho. So they came to the next enemy town of Ai, and because they'd overtaken Jericho, the great enemy fortress, Joshua thought, well, we can take Ai, so he sent the troops up. And Ai defeated the Israelites, and Israelites were killed, and Joshua got the message and he tore his cloak and he fell on the ground and he said, God, have you brought us into the promised land just to live in defeat? And God said, Joshua, this isn't a time to lie on your face and pray. It's a time to repent of your sin. There is sin in the camp. And Joshua had to go throughout the camp of Israel until he found one man named Achan who had taken something God said he couldn't have and he had buried it down deep. And Joshua had to unbury that thing, take the man and his family, put them outside the camp. Actually, Joshua put them to death before they could go back to Ai and have victory. And never again did they suffer defeat until they had everything God had promised them. I believe today the church of Jesus Christ is powerless 
And we're living in defeat by the enemy. And we substitute for the power of God programs and activities and all the stuff and the entertainment and all the videos and the mimes and the dramas and covering up for the lack of the power of God in our midst. And it's because there's sin in the camp. So let me ask you, what's the sin buried down deep in your life? And nobody knows what it is. They don't need to. It's not their business. But God knows. And it will cause you to live in defeat. You're not going to get the answers to prayer he wants to give you. You're not going to be a channel of his blessing to other people. You're not going to experience the fullness of what he wants to give you. You're not going to come into his purpose for your life. You're not going to have the freedom and the release that he means for you to experience, to be filled with joy and peace. Because that sin that's buried down deep. What is it? Have you had an abortion? Would you confess that is the sin that it is? Are you living an immoral lifestyle? Or is there somebody here involved in pornography on the internet? Everywhere I go, I find Christians, God's people, involved in that, just seeping around and poisoning the church. Maybe it's a deep bitterness towards someone who's abused you when you were younger. Unforgiveness towards some injustice towards one of your children. Maybe the sin that's buried down deep is that you just can't forgive yourself for something that you've done. And it's time to take that sin and put it outside the camp. And you put it to death. You crucify it. And you bring it to the cross. And you say, God, I believe you sent Jesus to die for me to take away all my sin, but your blood in particular covers that sin. And you bring it to the cross, and you just leave it there. And if it's somebody else that you need to forgive, and you say, Ann, I can't, and you wouldn't tell me to forgive them if you knew what that person had done, listen to me. I'm not asking you to forgive that person for their sake. They don't deserve it. I'm asking you to forgive that person for God's sake. Because God, for Jesus' sake, has forgiven you. So when you extend your forgiveness to that other person, that's an act of worship, isn't it? You wouldn't do that except you love Jesus. It's your gift that you bring to him at the cross, and you say, Jesus, I love you, and so I'm going to lay this down before you. And you know, he keeps the books. He's not going to let that person get by with it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. You leave it to him. But listen, tonight you be set free of that. Don't hang on to your bitterness. Don't hang on to your unforgiveness. If he's forgiven you, you forgive yourself. And if you don't, you're saying, God, you know, you forgive me, thank you, but my standards are higher than yours and I just can't forgive myself. And that's another sin, isn't it? So whatever the sin is, I'm asking you, would you be willing to bring it to the cross? Would you repent of your sin? Now here's Anne with this final word. Sometimes the stain of our sin seems so repugnant and the gift of God's grace so extravagant that we can hardly believe he bestows it on us so freely. But he does. His word tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes I have trouble forgiving myself and letting go of it. But I've learned by hard experience that self-flagellation can be devil-inspired. So now, when Satan comes to remind me that I'm a weakling in prayer, I tell him, yes, I have been, but I've taken my prayerlessness to the cross, 
and I know my sin is forgiven, and my guilt has been atoned for. What sin is Satan trying to remind you of? Is it lying, or adultery, or abortion, or jealousy, or bitterness, or resentment, or unforgiveness? Take it to the cross. When Satan tries to make you feel guilty for it by reminding you of it, you tell him your sin has been forgiven and your guilt has been atoned for. You are under the precious blood of Jesus. You bear it no more. I pray that as you hear this today, like Isaiah, the eyes of your heart have been opened, giving you a fresh vision of the Lord, seated on his throne, high and exalted. And as a result, you return to the cross, repent of your sin, and recommit to live the rest of your life with no regrets. You've been listening to Living in the Light. And when you go to angramlots.org, there are free resources to help you in your study of God's Word. Anne's desire is that you embrace a God-filled life, step-by-step, choice-by-choice, living in the light.